All right. All right, so this week we are diving into our series, Jesus for Everyone, kind of in earnest. So we, we kicked it off with Christmas, and so we immediately went from uh, Jesus for Everyone to our kind of series within a series, Christmas uh, for Everyone. And we started looking at the, the Christmas narrative, the, the portion of, of Luke's story where he focuses in on uh, on Christmas, but this week we're going to kind of dig into the series uh, that's going to be a long road for us. That'll cover uh, almost every Sunday that we ha- that we have this uh, this coming year, and one that I'm certain uh, will leave us all changed and challenged as we walk through it. And we're going to get started at the very beginning of Luke's book. So you can turn to Luke chapter one, uh, a, a small little section that we skipped over in order to to get right to. Uh, Christmas, but we're going to backtrack just a little bit, uh, and we're going to spend some time talking this morning about, uh, honestly, a little bit academically, talking about uh, kind of what Luke's doing, why Luke's writing, and if the words academically and rain on uh, on the the roof automatically make you think, all right, I'm out, and you're uh, you're heading you're heading off. Just hang with me because I think once we get through this, you will see. That there is much for us to um, there's much for us to learn as we walk through this, and I think we'll have our hearts and our minds uh, both challenged and comforted this morning as we go through this. So Luke chapter one, uh, we're in Luke, one of the four gospels. If you know little about the Bible, you probably uh, uh, or, and, and maybe just a little bit about the New Testament. Probably one of the first things that that anyone would know would be the four gospels: Matthew. Mark, Luke, and John. So uh, that that is that is a, a common one that most people uh, would know and be able to uh, to pull out. Um, but in these four books, each of them uh, kind of addresses the person of Jesus a little bit differently. And these four gospels are important for us as Christians because they kind of serve as the bedrock for our faith. They kind of serve us to uh, to teach us everything that we know about Jesus, or at least almost everything that we know about. Jesus comes from one of these four Gospels, one of these four uh, books that we have from one of them uh, writing. But each of them does this a little bit, little bit differently. All of our understanding, all of our knowledge, everything that we know about how Jesus lived, what he taught, what he did, uh, all of those things comes from these four books. So without these four authors, then the person of Jesus would be, for all intents and purposes, lost to history. Yet each of them approaches the person of Jesus and tells the story of Jesus just a little bit differently. Each has his own purpose, his own audience, his own style, his own story to tell. Now, some of you, that may make you a little bit nervous. And you may say, how can four people have a different story to tell about the same person? Shouldn't four people be telling the same story about Jesus, not four people telling a different story about Jesus? Isn't that one of the reasons why we can't trust the Bible? Because these are really just four guys that are telling stories about Jesus. But I would, I would ask you, if I were to go to uh, your, your boss, your spouse, your kid, and one of your best friends, would they all tell the same story about you? Even if you are the most remarkably consistent person across all of those relationships, what you know is that their interaction with you and the way that they know you is different depending upon what they've, how they came to know you and, and how you interact with them and, and what the nature of your relationship is. 
If I were to ask four people to give me uh, a description of you and to tell me their story of you, all four would be a little bit different, even though they may be talking about the same person. And so this is the same way that this works with the four Gospels. Each of them has a different way in which they are telling us about Jesus. So two of them are apostles. Two of them are not. Two of them were with him everywhere that he went. Two of them were not. One of those that was not with him is Luke. So you can imagine that Luke's going to tell a story differently since he wasn't with Jesus than John would, who was one of his close personal friends. They have a different way of looking at Jesus. And the way that Luke tells this story is the way that perhaps you and I would tell the story if we were not, if we were uh, alive back then, but weren't fortunate enough to be one of his disciples. He goes around and he asks the people that were with Jesus. He goes around and he talks to people and he says, tell me about Jesus. Tell me about what it was like when he was born. Tell me about what it was like to sit under his teaching. Tell me about what it was like to walk with him, to be with him, to talk with him. Tell me about Jesus. And then as he forms this picture of who Jesus is, he sits down to write this story. And here's his opening lines in Luke chapter 1 that will serve us well this morning. Luke 1.1. 1, 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of these things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So Luke lays out how he's going to write this story. And he's going to do this as someone with an analytical mind would do. Now, Luke is a physician. We know this from, uh, from Acts and from other places. Luke is a, a, a physician. But whenever you hear that, he's not like scrubs and stethoscope kind of doctor. Those guys didn't exist back then. Being a doctor back then was more about research and more about taking good notes and more about observing people and observing how people responded to certain things. So it, it, it didn't really work like, here, come see me when you're sick and I'll send you away with a prescription and I'll diagnose you. It was really more of a, let me know more about you, let me learn, let me observe, and let me make a report. He knew how to do those things. And he knew how to write that down in a way that others could understand. And that's what he sits out to do. He says he's going to give us an orderly account of the life of Jesus. And he's going to do it by talking to the people that were there, the ones that saw him in the manger and the ones that saw him in the tomb, the ones that saw him heal a blind man and the ones that saw him on the cross, the ones that heard him teach and the ones that saw him ascend into heaven. That's the ones that he's going to learn from. And then he's going to help us here today, learn about that same Jesus. And so he says this in this inscription that he is writing to the excellent Theophilus. Now, there has been all, there's been volumes written about this Theophilus. And here's what I'm going to tell you that we know about Theophilus. Nothing. We really don't know anything about who he is. Uh, Some people think that he is like a wealthy patron who is basically funding Luke's research in order to get this out there the same way that that an artist might have been funded in order to do someone's self-portrait. That somebody wealthy in 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 the Greek community, we know that his name is a Greek name, 
someone wealthy in the Greek community said, you know, it'd be good for us to have a history of this Jesus out there. Let me pay you, Theophilus, to, or let me pay you, Luke, to write this. And that Theophilus was the one that was funding it, which is possible. Totally is a possible way that it works. We know that the name Theophilus is a Greek name, and so many have led that to, have, have, uh, have taken that to mean that Luke is writing to a Greek audience, to a non-Jewish audience, which is, again, possible. Uh, the, the problem is there were, there were Greeks who were also Jews. Now, there weren't a lot of them, but there were some of them. And so there's no, there's no guarantee that this is written to a non-Jewish audience. And, and to say that, that, that because Theophilus is addressed, then that means this is exactly who it's written to. I think that's a bit speculative. Uh, on top of that, the name Theophilus uh, is also kind of like a, it can kind of work like a, like a pseudonym. Because the name Theophilus means friend of God or lover of God. So you get that, the, the Theo in the beginning, that's going to be where we get theology, the study of God, that's going to be God. And at the end of Theophilus, the, the, the Theophilus at the end, same place where Philadelphia comes from, the city of brotherly love. So, so you put those together and that's what his name means as friend of God or, um, or lover of God. And so some people have speculated that really what Luke is doing is he's writing this to a very generic audience, but one that is friendly to the message of Jesus or to hearing the message of Jesus or even to Christians who simply don't have a gospel and an account of who Jesus is. And so really it, it serves as the same way as like, a, like if you, you ever watch like, a, like, like see a, a fundraiser or uh, like, like you go to... Uh, um, I'm, I'm thinking like you go to a, a play or, or you're watching something like on, on PBS and you, you, they're asking for a donation to PBS and they say friends of PBS is what you would be if you, t- if you donated to this. And so what they're saying is not that, that your name is friends of PBS. They're saying that you are, uh, you are a friend because you have, uh, you have given money. And so this very, very much could be kind of this like generic moniker that says you friends of God, friends. Um, and so he could be writing to a very general audience, which includes all of us, not to one person in Theophilus. All of that to say, bottom line is, we don't really know who this Theophilus is. We know his name is Greek, and we know that the purpose Luke gives us is far more important than the person Luke is writing to. And he, gives, he tells us that he's writing to give us an account and to give us something that, as I get older... I find less and less, and I value more and more, certainty. He writes to give us certainty. Do you see that in verse 4? That you may have a certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. I think this is one of those things you just, there's no way to convey this uh, other than just living life. It's just one of those things you can't fully appreciate until you just live life and you get a little bit older. You can't appreciate it without age. There are so many things that I was certain of at 22 that I don't have a clue about at 42. So many things that I knew everything about and I absolutely was like, this is absolutely how it is. But now if you were to come to me, I would be like, man, I don't have a clue. I, don't, I thought I knew, but I, I don't know. And I don't know if that's because I'm wiser uh, or if I've just, because I've grown more cynical. I'm not sure which one of those it is, um, but, the, but the reality is I, don't, I, I, I thought I knew a lot more at 22 than I think I know now. Uh, the certainty of youth is a luxury 
that I can no longer afford, but one that I'll be honest with you, I deeply long for, often. There are few things in this world that I love more than when I am confronted with facts, with truth, with evidence, with arguments, and I change my mind about something. Now, my wife will tell you that that part of the reason why I think I appreciate that is because it doesn't happen very often. Because once I have made up my mind about something, once I have said, this is what I believe, this is where I am, it's going to take a massive amount to convince me otherwise. Uh, it's going to take a lot for me to be able to get to a place where I can say, I was wrong about that, and I know better now. I can be stubborn. Uh, which is part of the reason why I do love it when it does happen, because it isn't uh, a normal thing. But when, when a conviction with certainty is challenged and changed, uh, as unsettling as it can be, I've found that those are moments that can be deeply satisfying for me, because a small piece of my world has been torn down, but it has been built back stronger. I don't know if you can relate to that. I don't know if you can appreciate that, but, but, but if something that was kind of a, a, a scaffolding that was there, that kind of gets ripped away, and then what gets built back in its place is so much stronger than what was there. And I think Luke writes like that. At least that's my approach as, ever, as, I, as I start this gospel. So just know that whenever we, we're going through this, that's my approach. I think, I, I think Luke writes in order to highlight the things that Jesus does that subvert our expectations, that show us that, that, that Jesus came to kind of, kind of change our expectations about so many things. Luke writes in order to tear down our ought-tos and our supposed-tos and replace them with a new paradigm. And then he brings Jesus along to say, now, follow me in this new paradigm. And so what Luke is doing is he's saying, you thought it was like this, but I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, it, it was different. You thought the Messiah was going to be like this. You thought you needed a Savior like this. You thought Jesus was going to come and reign like this. But I'm here to tell you that the Christ is different than what you thought he was going to be. Now, Jesus comes along and says, now that you know what I'm actually like, now follow me. And then people are like, well, wait a minute, that's not what I was expecting. I don't know that I can do that. And Jesus says, really? Well, take up your cross and follow me. And they say, well, that doesn't make any sense because a cross is going to kill me. And Jesus says, exactly. And that is how Luke approaches his gospel. It happens all over the place. We saw this all over the Christmas story, right? The birth of a king with virtually no mention of his father. Instead, we have the focus on two women, one old, one young, some shepherds, and a manger none of which belong in the birth narrative of a king. None of which you would think belong in the birth narrative of the coming Messiah. Nothing fit for a king or a Messiah or a lineage, and yet that's where Luke focuses his story. He tears down, but then he rebuilds. He, 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 he undercuts the expectations, and then he rebuilds with something stronger. It's like how they say that when you break a bone, it won't break again in the same place. Now, that might be a myth, but the idea, the principle holds. As many of us learn as we get older, we once believed that if we, if we followed God, if we kept the rules, if we did what we were supposed to, then in the end, life would just kind of work out for us. That, that if we just did these things, life in the end would just kind of work out. 
it would just kind of be, be all right, that everything would be okay, kind of this general happiness would follow. It's not to say that you wouldn't like, you know, stub your toe every now and then, or you wouldn't like miss the nail and hit your thumb with a hammer and, and hurt a little bit, but generally speaking, life would be good. Rain is coming down now. And so, like, like for so many of us, this is kind of how we thought life would be. And then as we get older and as we go through life, at some point, that illusion crumbles for all of us. Every one of us, that illusion crumbles on some level. Some when you're young, some when you're older, but eventually we will all suffer. Eventually we will all kind of have that illusion taken away that life just generally works out for us. But as so many of you could walk up here and you could testify today, the faith that replaces that all is well, everyone smile, superficial, everything's going to be great. The faith that replaces that is so much deeper, so much better, stronger. And the, the picture that we have of God when we walk through suffering and struggle, all of that is such a better picture of who God is. And it is so much more humbling, but it is so much more reassuring. But the superficial faith had to crumble first. It's the only way to get there. The only way to get to that deeper, sustaining, abiding faith and know about a caring, sustaining, faithful God is that the, the all-is-well faith had to crumble first. And so Luke says, it's okay when that happens. Let's follow Jesus and see what that look, looks like. Luke writes to teach us about that kind of faith. So as we go through this book, just know that in, in, in almost every sermon, in almost every text, I'm going to be looking for that. And I think you should be looking for that too. How is Luke subverting something here? How is Luke drawing out the unexpected here as he goes through this? Tear down, but rebuild so much stronger. And I say all that, and this morning we're not going to see kind of like so much tearing down in our next passage we're going to look at here, but the subverting already starts in this passage we're going to kind of briefly look at this morning. So now turn with me to Luke chapter 2, the end of Luke chapter 2, and we're going to look at one story about about Jesus whenever he is a young child here, or whenever he's a boy, on the verge of becoming, uh, in Jewish culture, a man. So Luke chapter 2, verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, and his parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him along their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. And after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who had heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. We'll stop there for just a second. So we fast forwarded a bit in our story. We last saw Jesus. He was baby Jesus being presented in the temple. Fast forward in our story. Jesus isn't a baby, but he's now a 12-year-old. And this is the only story that we have in any of the Gospels about what Jesus was like as, uh, as, a, as a child, kind of in that, that middle ground before his ministry really began, uh, but after the birth narratives. This is the only story. 
Now, there are some, some false gospels. Maybe you've heard some of these gospels that, that supposedly talk about what Jesus was like. Uh, supposedly talk about what Jesus was like whenever he was a kid. And they talk about him like performing these miracles kind of on a whim, talking to the animals, kind of like playing pranks a little bit with some of the miracles that he could do. Uh, all this kind of like weird stuff that, that, that frankly, this story, it makes this story look pretty, pretty tame and kind of boring in, in comparison, which is kind of the point. Those other stories are pretty fantastical because they were written hundreds of years after Jesus and they were trying to kind of puff up Jesus a little bit and, and showing all these like powers that he had as though he were like this kind of sorcerer type thing and that's how he could use his powers. Those are all demonstrably false gospels and if you want to argue with me about it, I'm happy to do it, uh, but it's not even like it's not even close scholarship. It's easy to prove how these gospels are false gospels written hundreds of years after the life of Jesus. But this is all we have. This story is pretty much uh, it. This one story Luke gives us. And you have to ask a little bit, okay, Luke, why not just skip this? Everybody else does. Why do you want to give us one story? If you're just going to give us one story, why not give us a bunch of stories? So you have to ask that question a little bit. Why does Luke give us this one story? So where we're at here, Jesus has either just undergone uh, his bar mitzvah or is about to soon. This kind of tra tra uh, traditional transition from, uh, that's a Jewish custom that, that is the official transition from boy to man. The, the term bar mitzvah uh, literally means son of the commandment. And so what hap what's happened here is Jesus has either just done that or likely is probably going to uh, the next year. But he's right there on that that edge. And, and, and kind of what that means is he's not quite under his parents' wings the same way that he would be as a young child. Still their responsibility, still theirs, but, but things are starting to change just a little bit. Mary and Joseph have made their annual pilgrimage to Jerusalem for Passover. They would travel in a caravan for safety purposes. There was no 911 to call in case a robber showed up. The only safety that you had would be that you were traveling with your uncle and your cousins and your grandpa and your dad and, and, and that this is who was traveling with you. So they would travel in a caravan and they would have this kind of community and they would be singing songs as they go up to Jerusalem, kind of all of this kind of thing. And now they've been in town for Passover and they turn around and they head out of town. Uh, and they, they've left, and they kind of realize after about a day or so, uh-oh, uh, have you seen Jesus? No, I haven't seen Jesus. I thought he was with you. Nope. No, he's not with me. I thought he was with you. We talked about this. Like, this conversation starts happening, and they realize uh, after a day's journey uh, that, that they have forgotten Jesus in Jerusalem. Now, depending on your parenting style, this story is either horrifying or hilarious. I don't know which one it is for you. I don't know where you're at with this one. Um, it, it's one of the, the two, but you can imagine uh, a day's walk is a, big, uh, is a big deal. It is no small matter. I've stood in the lobby plenty of times with a Mullins kid who's like, oh, they forgot me. But that is a 10-minute walk to their house, right? Not a day's journey to get to their house at that point. Um, this is a little bit, this is a little bit different. Uh, to complicate things, when they get back to Jerusalem, they can't find him anywhere. They can't find him, it, it takes them three more days to find him. And you can imagine kind of how that starts to ratchet up a little bit, like, oh my goodness, what have we done? What is going on? 
I, I got to imagine if you're, if you're Mary and Joseph, there's got to be, we've lost the Son of God. Like that is an extra, that's an extra, like not just my kid, this, uh, we've lost the Son of God. That's a big deal, right? Um, and and you, you can imagine like the, the kind of anxiety that starts happening there and how they kind of start talking to each other. I can imagine the conversation like, I thought you had him, I thought you had him. And they want to fight, but they're so nervous and they're so like anxiety ridden that they don't have time to fight. And so they got this like tension that's just there all the time. Like you can just imagine how all of this, uh, this plays out. And then when they finally find him, where he, he, he's sitting and listening and talking with rabbis and teachers. Now, aside from all the parental drama, what do you think of whenever you see this picture of Jesus there in the temple with these rabbis? In my mind, I always kind of thought of Jesus kind of toying with these rabbis. Like this Jesus who, who, who uh, you, you know, kind of like, kind of like you know the scene from... Uh, um, the, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, whenever the White Witch quotes to Aslan, he says, don't quote the dark magic, don't, qu- don't quote the magic to me, I was there when it was written, right? You know, like, like kind of like that's how Jesus is with these rabbis, like t- telling them, hey, listen, I, I'm the, I, I was there when this was written, I was there when you were made, I was there when the world was made, can we just stop arguing here and kind of like messing around with them? That is always kind of how like, like Jesus is kind of the, the, the teacher that has the answer key, and he just keeps messing with the students who he knows can't get the, the answer right, and kind of like shaming them a little bit. That's kind of how I, I kind of see all of this, this happening. But that's not what it says is happening. Yes, he wows them with, with their answers. But what it says is that he is learning, that he is sitting there at their feet. He's asking questions. He's not asking questions as gotchas. Like, hey, I bet you can't get this one right. Hey, I bet, here's one to mess with your head. He's not asking questions like that. He wants to learn. And so he's sitting at the feet of these rabbis, learning, writing these things on his head and on his heart. And you say, hang on. This is God. This is Jesus. What, what kind of stuff did he have to learn? How, how, does this, how does this work? Wouldn't he already know everything? He's Jesus. He's the, the son of God. All right, let me just tell you, there's PhDs written throughout the centuries on this question. How does this work? What did Jesus know and when did he know it? Those kind of things. There's all kinds of that stuff out, but here's the basics. Jesus was a man. He wasn't born with knowledge. When he was born and laid in that manger, he was a baby that needed his mother. He was a boy that needed teaching. So, so, so how was he wowing these teachers here at this point? How is this happening? So it's clear that he's a, a little bit different. Was Jesus just brilliant? That he just had, was he just this child prodigy that, that could understand the law like no one else that came before him? Listen, I think Jesus was a man, just like me, just like you. He was a human with flesh on, just like all of us. There's one difference, though. He didn't have a sin nature. He didn't have sin to wrestle with. So when he's studying scriptures, he's not wrestling with, how do I apply this? Or maybe the better application is, how do I defend and justify my sin against what I've just read? Uh, He's not having that conversation with the scriptures. He's simply saying, let me learn how this all works together. 
Let me see how this works. He doesn't have to wrestle with his sin. He had no sin, no sin nature. And so that lack of sin enabled him to pursue God unhindered and, and unstained. His Bible study was different than mine and, than, your, and than, than what yours was. He's not smarter and kind of pulled the God card out and, and, and then like, it's not like when he turned 12, God was like, boom, all right, now you remember everything that I had you forget before. No, he had to learn. It says that he grew in wisdom and stature. He had, he had to grow. But because he had no sin to, to, to wrestle with and no sin to try to justify and defend against, he could just listen and learn. And that sinlessness allows him to run this race in a way that I cannot even come close to, even him as a 12-year-old. But make no mistake about it. We got we to we wrestle a little bit with this here. Jesus is fully God and fully man, 100% of both. As much God as if he were not man, as much man as if he were not God. Bad math, but it's good theology. It's exactly how it works. What the scriptures make clear is that Jesus temporarily uh, laid down some aspects of his divinity. He did not give them up in the sense that he, he, he no longer had them, but he, 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 he laid them down. Uh, he still possessed them, but he willingly kind of restricted himself while he was in the flesh. I've told you before that one of the things that we uh, are, are far too quick to give up on as Christians today is the rich history that we have in our church history. We're too quick, especially a church like ours, non-denominational church. We're not rooted in any long-seated traditions or anything like that. We are quick to, to kind of give up some of these things. And in doing so, we, 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 to our discredit, we miss out on some of the richest things and, and the most foundational things that we have, especially in our creeds and our confessions. In our creeds, we have thousands of years of theological truth that has withstood the test of time, withstood the scrutiny of theologians, and withstood the, uh, kind of the onslaught of all the heresies that could come our way. And so we have these creeds that are there, but we don't talk about them in the same way, especially here at Providence, uh, as, as probably what we should. And these creeds serve us well to kind of define the bounds of orthodoxy and what our faith is. These creeds help us. So this isn't uh, a, a theology made up by four or five elders in a room. This is a theology that, uh, that, that, that is the faith once for all handed down to the saints. So let's take just a minute. I'm, I'm going to do something here that I, I went back and forth about whether I should do this or not. Let's take just a minute and look at this creed that's called the Chalcedonian Creed. The Chalcedonian Creed written in 451 A.D. All right, so I know some of you guys are like geeking out like, oh, this is fun. Let's do this. And then some of you guys, whenever I read this and I go through this, are going to be like, I don't know what he just said. Can we just move on to a more practical point here? Uh, but I, I want to read through this because I think it's helpful and I think it's good for you to see what these theologians wrestled with. And so this, uh, this, this creed uh, was... Um, this Chalcedonian Creed was written whenever uh, church leaders would, would get together and they were wrestling that were, with two heresies that were coming up in, the, uh, in this time period. One was a heresy that basically said that Jesus had one nature and in that nature was some mixture of God and man. 
They didn't know what it was. Was he 60% God, 40% man? Was he, when he was a baby, he was 1% God, 99% man. But as he got older, that, that kind of shifted a little bit. And the church father said, no, that's heresy. You can't say that. And they said, well, why not? I, that sounds like a good uh, compromise to me to figure this out. And they said, well, give us a minute. We'll talk through this. And then there was another heresy that was developing over here that basically said, Jesus was 100% God or 100% man, but he wasn't both. He was, he was each one individually. So when he was here on earth, he was 100% man. And then whenever he goes to heaven, he's 100% God, but he wasn't both at the same time. And they're like, no, that's not it either. Like, I get you're trying to wrestle with this, but that too is heresy. And they're saying, well, why is that heresy? I don't understand uh, who says. And they said, well, give us a minute. We'll talk about this and we'll figure it out. And so they came with this here, uh, and this is, uh, this is the, the Chalcedonian Creed. And I'm going to read this for us here um, and, and try to kind of explain a few terms as we go, because I think it's helpful for us to see this written so long ago. Here's what they said. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead, and also perfect in Manhood. So he is, he, is, he is perfect both in his God nature and in his man nature, in his uh, nature as a man. Truly God and truly man of a reasonable soul and body. So reasonable of a real soul and body. Consubstantial. That word consubstantial, con is with substance in their substantial. So with substance with us according to the manhood. So he was truly a person with substance that walked with us, that was with us. In all things like unto us, without sin. Begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead. And in these latter days for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God according to the manhood. So with God in all eternity and now in these days, uh, born of the Virgin Mary with us in his, uh, in his humanity. So both God and man, both with God and with man. One and the same Christ, Son, Lord only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. He is one. He is one. His, his, his God nature and his human nature, he is one in those things. The distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union. So just because he becomes... He becomes these two things together in the person of Jesus. Neither of those two things go away. Fully man, fully God. Again, as much man as if he were not God, as much God as if he were not man. This is the creed. But rather, the property of each nature being preserved. He is both. And con concurring in one person and one substance, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son. And only begotten, God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him, and the Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us, and the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. That creed, over 1,600 years old, has been the bedrock for much of what you believe. You may not know that, you may not realize that, you may just think, no, 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 I just read my Bible and that's where I got it. I'm telling you, that creed and how people argued and debated and worked through these heresies and each of these different things have shaped what we believe. 
And I love how it says at the end, we didn't get this because we argued about it. We got this because this is what the prophet said, and this is what Jesus taught us, and this is what has been handed down to us. And now we've got 1,600 plus years of people arguing and debating, and the creed stands. It defines for us orthodoxy and what it is. So this Jesus, as boy, 12 years old, is sitting in the temple, and he needs to learn. He needs to grow. Can you imagine the amount of humility that must have taken to sit and learn at the foot of a rabbi and these teachers and ask them questions when he's the one that wrote the answer key? And yet he lays it all down and he says, teach me. How much more does that apply to you? For so many of us, our attitude is, I'm going to teach you what I believe. I'm going to teach you what, what, what the Bible says. I'm going to tell you what I believe and you can believe it or not. I'm going to say, this is what it is. And what I'm telling you is, our, our posture must be more like Jesus. If Jesus had to sit and learn, how much more do you? How much more do I? How much more do we have to be able to say, you know what, I've got it wrong in some places, and I need to be able to change my mind about some things. It doesn't mean that we don't hold on tightly to things. I'm telling you about a creed that's 1,600 years old, and I'm telling you, never let go of it. Die for that. But you have to sit and learn and listen. This is part of growing as a Christian. Growing in wisdom and stature just like Jesus. This creed helps us in Luke's task. It affirms his goal to get us to a place of certainty. So whenever you read this about Jesus and how he had to learn as a 12-year-old, it doesn't shake your faith. Whenever you, you get in an argument or a debate with someone and they say, well, how could Jesus be God if he had to go and sit and learn from, from, from these, these rabbis whenever he was 12 years old? You, you're not shaken by the fact that Jesus doesn't know the, the time or the hour of his return, as he tells us later in the book of Luke. You're not shaken by those things because you can say, yeah, I, I get it. I don't fully understand how it works together, but I understand it a little bit. You gain a certainty by looking at things like this. We don't have to guess. We know who Jesus was, fully God and fully man. I'd love to spend weeks here, but we got to move on, and we got to move on pretty quick here. So Luke chapter 2, verse 48, the end of the story here. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished, and his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them, and he came to Nazareth, and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Now, I'm go not going to lie. I'm just going to be honest. It totally sounds like Jesus is being a smart aleck. It totally sounds like that is like a smart response. And I'll just tell you right now, kids, don't try this at home. Like, you don't want, you don't want to respond in that same way. But I think that's why Luke gives us there at the end where he says he was submissive to them. He went with them. He listened to them. He wasn't being disobedient. I don't think it was intended to be a smart aleck response. I think what Luke wants to make clear is that from the earliest days that Jesus could be expected to know who he was and who Yahweh was, he did know who Yahweh was. He was laser focused on his task of knowing God. 
He wasn't there disobeying Mary and Joseph. He was there because he had no distractions. He had uh, no other objectives, no other goals, no other pursuits in his life, save one, to know the Father. He wanted to know who God was. So he's there to learn. And nothing was going to distract him from that. Nothing. You and I have no shortage of sins and vices to draw our hearts away. And Satan is massively skilled at how to draw each of those things out of us. No shortage of things that would distract us. Jesus Jesus did not have that. He pursued the Father in a way that even, even after all that had happened and all that they had seen 12 years prior, Mary and Joseph couldn't even understand it. He was so laser focused that even whenever they saw Jesus sitting there learning, they're like, I understand the words that are coming out of your mouth, Jesus, but I don't understand what they mean because I can't relate. I'm not that laser focused. I've got problems. I've got sin. I've got other things to distract me and to worry about. And Jesus is saying, I have nothing else to worry about, nothing else to distract me. I am about the Father's business. Jesus lived life with a clarity, with a certainty that that we will never know this side of heaven. But that doesn't mean that we have to live life with some blind, just kind of guessing, we'll see if we get their faith. Jesus as a man, as a 12-year-old youth, he is our picture and our model here. Listening, learning, growing, all with a purpose. Is our purpose the same as his? Is, is, is our purpose here on earth the same as Jesus? I mean, we're not meant for a cross. We're not bound to save the world, right? So, so maybe Jesus is a unique case because of what Jesus came to do. And in some ways that's true. But the ultimate goal is the same. Our goal here is to glorify God. You know, I talked a, a little bit earlier about how Luke's writing earlier, or about how uh, Luke writes and, and how he wanted us to have certainty in what we believe. I remember whenever I first moved here to Jefferson City, when we first moved here, I was over at Carson Newman. Uh, I was walking around with, uh, uh, with Chad Sparks, the, the, the pastor of Providence in Knoxville, our, our, our sending church, our planning church. And uh, we were walking around with his dad, with Coach Sparks over there. And uh, he, he asked me, uh, I think there's uh, something on the wall over there, but it says it gets foggy at Mossy Creek, right? Is that on the wall over there? Is that? Yeah, I thought so. So I, I guess he saw me reading that up there and I was looking at it and he's like, you ever heard the saying, it gets foggy at Mossy Creek? I said, I've never heard of Mossy Creek, let alone a saying, it gets foggy at Mossy Creek. I thought this place was Jefferson City, uh, but, but evidently it used to be Mossy uh, Creek. And um, let, let me just tell you, after a decade uh, or more of living here, here's what I can tell you. It does get really foggy here. Like, I don't, it's, I don't know if it's just kind of the, the, I don't know the geography or what, but it does get foggy here. Um, and a, a couple of weeks ago, I don't know if any of you guys happened to be out. I can't remember what night it was. I think it was like the week before uh, Christmas. And I was driving in a fog that was the thickest fog that I have, uh, I have ever been in. And you'd think of all things in this world I would be certain of, driving home would be pretty high up there on that list, right? How to get to my house from, from here. 
It's four turns. That's all I have to make to get to my house from here. It is a pretty simple thing. We've lived there for like seven years now, seven, eight years, something like that. You would think I would know how to get home. I thought uh, I could get home. I thought I could get home uh, with my eyes closed. I think I could have done better if I was driving with my eyes closed than I could have in this fog. Uh, it, was, uh, it, it was a lot. So I pull out from here, get on 92. I'm heading up 92. And as I'm heading up 92, uh, I'm going about 30. Because if I go any faster than that, then I'm not going to know what's going on. I mean, you couldn't see. I, visibility couldn't have been more than about 10 to 15 feet. It was right there uh, in, in front of me. And what I've got to do whenever I go home is I've got two options. I've got the, the short way, which is the way I normally go, which is I go down 92, turn onto Forgetty Road, and then I've got about a mile shot to, uh, to my house from there. Or I've got to go all the way down to the high school, and I turn into traffic light down there. That's a long, that's a long way around, and uh, don't, ever, well, don't usually go that way. But I'm driving down 92, going about 30, and I'm looking the whole time, and I never found my turn. I never figured out where I was supposed to turn. Like, I just kept going, and at some point, I was like, I'm not sure where I'm at, but I've gone too far. That's all I knew. I didn't know where I was at. I didn't know. I couldn't see anything around me. I couldn't see the golf course. I couldn't see anything around me, any other houses. It was just what was right there in front of me. And I was like, I don't know what to do, uh, but I can't turn because I'm never going to find the, the road. And so all, all I knew is if I keep on going, I'm eventually going to run into a traffic light. If I keep on going, I'm going to see that, that traffic light, and, and all I needed to do was just kind of keep moving. And all it took was some fog to roll in, and the simplest, most certain thing I can think of was completely lost on me. What I knew, what I, I literally thought I knew well enough that I could probably, you could put me in the back seat with somebody else driving and I could probably get us pretty close with, with a blindfold on because I've made the trip so many times. All I wanted to do was get through the fog and get home and all it took was just a little bit to make what I was so certain of be completely lost. But all I had to do was keep going. It wasn't the way I wanted to go. It was a long way around. It wasn't the quickest or the easiest way, but I eventually got home. Many of you in here today are in that kind of a fog right now. If not, you will be soon enough. You'd give anything for clarity or certainty at this point. You'd give anything to have, to, to, to feel like your feet were on solid ground and you could see a vision in front of you of where you needed to go. That vision that was so clear, that road that was so straight that, that you could see that's exactly where I need to be and where I want to go. It's completely shrouded now by a fog. And all that certainty and all that clarity of vision that was before you is gone. And now you're stuck trying to figure out, what do I need to do here? You can't see a thing. You can't tell if that's a traffic light you're coming to or a semi that's up in front of you. You can't tell anything. Listen, Luke writes us that we might have certainty in our belief. And all he's going to do in this entire book is keep pointing us to Jesus over and over and over and over again. 
And when we see Jesus, we've got to see what he's doing. We've got to listen to what he's saying. And whenever we see why, what he's doing and why he's doing it, that's where you will find your certainty. When you look to Jesus, that's where you will find your certainty. This boy turning into a man by Jewish tradition lays it out for us. Now, perhaps you're not going to be a 12-year-old that's arguing with these kind of learned scholars and, and, and rabbis and pastors, but, but you can follow Jesus' Jesus's example. And what is that example? To be about the Father's business. To be all about the Father's business. To have a laser focus on the things of God, even in the midst of the fog. You ever notice when you're driving or whenever it's raining really hard, uh, like it is right now, the weather gets bad, the fog comes in, the rain starts to pour, and you're driving, what do you do? What do you do whenever you're driving and it starts to rain really hard, like coming down? What do you do? You slow down, and then you turn down the radio, right? You turn down the radio. I, I know a couple of different times Isaiah's been like, what, you turn the, what are you turning the radio down for? Like, what does that have to do with you, with you driving? Here's the reality. You need to turn down the radio because you need no distractions. When the fog comes in, when the rain is coming down, you need to be laser focused on the road to make sure that you're going to get where you're going. You can't be distracted from anything but the task at hand. And what is the task at hand? To get yourself home safely. And I think that same thing works for us. I'm just going to tell you right now, some of you desperately need to turn down the radio in your life. You need to turn down the distractions in your life. You can't figure out what the way is forward. You can't find a vision for your life. You can't figure out why it is that you can't seem to make all of life connect. And it's because you are so focused on the distractions, you have not paid attention to the road that's ahead of you at all. You're not in fog. You're just distracted. Some of you need to turn down the distractions in your life. For others of you, there is a fog up there, and you need to turn down the distractions because you need to be laser-focused too, just so you can make it safely home. Turn down the distractions and know your purpose. It's exactly what 12-year-old Jesus did. He knew his purpose, and he wasn't going to be distracted by anything. So what is it that God has called you to do here? I can answer that for you. Maybe not specifically, but pretty close. I can answer that for you. It's the same as Jesus. It's to glorify his name. To make his name great. To be about his name, his fame, his glory, his honor. That is what you are called to. Now, maybe it's, it's in the way that you teach a class. Maybe it's in the way that you parent your kids. Maybe it's in the way that you love your spouse. Maybe it's in the way that you teach improv kids. Maybe it's in the way that you walk on campus at Carson Newman. Maybe it's in the way that you walk to your job on Monday morning. Maybe it's, 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 it's how you endure in the midst of suffering. could be any of those things. But you are called to glorify God, to make his name great. And do you want to know how to make it through the fog whenever you can't figure out what the vision is ahead? You find out what it looks like to keep your focus on him and to know him and to glorify him, and you do that. And here's the kicker. Here's the kicker to all of this. How do we do that best? Some people will tell you the best way to glorify God is to do something. 
And they'll give, you a, they'll, they'll give you this whole thing, this whole list of things to do. And they'll say, this is how you glorify God. But listen, let me tell you how you glorify God. Let me tell you the best way to glorify God. And get, let me give you a hint. It's not by pushing more. It's not by trying harder. It's not by gritting your teeth, uh, your teeth tighter. It's not by hanging on more. It's not by, by, by this kind of like sheer pull yourself up by the bootstraps and keep on pushing through and put your head down. That is not how you glorify God most. That's what Satan wants you to believe. That way, whenever you fail, you can wallow in self-pity and shame and you can say, oh, this is no good and God wasn't there for me. But here's the thing. We glorify God most when we trust him most. We glorify God whenever we rest in his character most. When we live as though the Bible is true and his grace is sufficient. That's how we glorify God the most. And sometimes that will require you and that will call you to do things. And as we go through the book of Luke, we'll see that. Sometimes that will call you to take up your cross and to die. Sometimes that will, that will call you to sit back and rest. For some of you, getting through the fog means you just need to rest, to sit down, to quit fighting, to let the fog kind of burn off, let the sun come up, and you just need to sit and rest in the person of Jesus Christ. For others of you, you need to be a bit like me in the car just to make sure you make it home, you turn down the radio, and you get rid of the distractions, and you keep moving. Whichever it is that God has called you to, to keep on moving or to sit down and rest, in all of it, trust God that he is the one over it all. That's what it looks like. And that subverts all of our expectations. Because all of us are hardwired to try to fix ourselves, to try to fix this world, to try to fix our lives, to try to atone from our mistakes in some way or another. And what God says is, I'm going to atone for them through my son. You trust in him. And when we rest in him and we trust in him and we know him, now you've got to know him in order to do that. You can't just sit back and, and be like, well, well, you know what? It, it'll just come. Jesus had to sit and learn. So do you. But as you learn and as you know more about God, what follows from that is that you trust in that part of his character. And all of us, all of us, our knowledge has outpaced our obedience. And what we are called to do is be obedient to the person and the nature of God. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we, as we end here this morning, it is our corporate call together that that is what we want and that is to glorify you. Father, for those that are in the midst of the fog, that are in the midst of the rain, that, that can't see the way forward, that, 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 that the fog has rolled in and the vision has been taken away, Father, I pray that you would grant them rest this morning. That they would not feel as though they are the ones that somehow have to remove the fog. But instead, that they would trust your hand and cling to you tightly in the midst of the fog. 
make it clear to us what it is that needs to happen? Do we need to keep on going or do we need to sit back and rest? Father, for those in here that are distracted by the world, that Satan has sent all the distractions and they've bought into them all and they can't, they can't seem to turn down their radio, Father, I pray that you would remove those distractions, convict them and, and, and remove those in their lives. And Father, for all of us in here, I pray that our story, our testimony would be that as we trust in you, our, our kind of sing-song We'll get there and all will be well faith kind of goes away and what is replaced is a faith that, that abides in you. And that holds fast whenever the waves break, whenever the fog comes in, when the rains come down, and when the path is clear. I pray that kind of faith for us all this morning. Father, I pray for that from you because I know that I cannot produce that on my own. It is the work of the Spirit in my life, and Father, I pray that you would do that in me. As scary as it is to say whatever it takes. Because I want to glorify you. And I pray that would be the heart's cry of every person in this room. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.